Hey, hey, happy Tuesday, and welcome to episode eight of Pathfinder. Today we'll be talking with Kevin Wheel, who serves as president of product and business at Planet. Kevin cut his consumer social teeth in the early days of Twitter before moving on to Instagram and some other cool projects at Meta. Eventually though, and most importantly for our purposes, Kevin made the jump to space, imaging satellites and software products to ingest, process, and understand what all of Planet's satellites are seeing. Really, really happy with the range of this conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it, but first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Our reliance on satellites for navigation, communications, commerce, and intelligence has grown exponentially in the new space economy. Unfortunately, the risks have grown as well. The need to prioritize cybersecurity around space assets is critical. Spider Permission Systems provides space cybersecurity products for military, commercial, and civilian operators. Their Orbit Secure solution is the first to deliver zero-trust security to zero-gravity environments, protecting space communication, command, control, data transmission, storage, and integrity at the data level. To learn more about Orbit Secure, check out their website at spideroak-ms.com. Again, that is spideroak-ms.com. Now, on to the main business of the day, Pathfinder Episode 8 with Kevin Wheel. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, I was just mentioning this before we actually went on air, but... We have, in the first seven episodes of Pathfinder, jumped around a lot, but we haven't actually had a dedicated focus yet on Earth observation or EO. And just for, for listeners who aren't familiar, we're gonna be, I'll be saying EO a lot this episode, and that's just that's short for Earth observation. And I think it's fitting, Matt, we, we have the president of Planet come on as our first dedicated EO episode. Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm a daily reader of Payload, so... Uh... We're fans of each other. That that makes me very happy. So why don't you give the quick elevator pitch of Kevin Wheel? Uh, and and we we will of course get into what you're doing at Planet, but I'm actually a little bit more interested to hear what you were up to before you joined Planet first. Yeah, sure. So I guess if you go back far enough, uh, I was a physics grad student. Thought I was going to be a physics professor for the rest of my life, studying theoretical particle physics. And actually met my wife. I was at Stanford and met my wife who kind of had grown up within the entrepreneurial ecosystem of Stanford. And I had no idea. Um, I, I mean, I, I was actually, I was at Harvard. I'm a year older than Mark. So I was at Harvard when Facebook, you know, took off. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking when Mark uh, went, he, he like, I went to his sophomore year and then dropped out to go focus on Facebook the whole time. I remember him, I remember thinking he's, he's going to give up a Harvard education to go do some company like that's crazy, you know? And, and, uh, so yeah. I had no, just, I had total blinders on you know, like math, physics, nothing, nothing else, no concept of like entrepreneurship or anything. So my wife kind of opened my eyes to it actually. And as, as I learned more, I was just like, man, that seems awesome. Like I could do physics and like maybe make a contribution over the next 50 years, maybe, or I can go write some code. Yeah. Yes. Ship something to a million people tomorrow. That's what I was going to ask about. What would the particle like physics track look like? Like how long would you stay in grad school, post-grad, whatever, before, as you say, you know, making, making an, uh, an actual impact in that field. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been. So I did like two years of grad school. I passed my quals. I basically got to the point where it would have turned into total research and, you know, spending all my time reading papers and stuff. And it's super interesting. It's just, yeah. you know, to make a contribution in theoretical physics is, uh, it, it's a career long thing. Whereas I feel so lucky. I, I get to like work on products that 
hopefully change people's lives day in and day out today. So it just felt so much more tangible. Right. Right. So I, I had grown up programming. My dad was at Microsoft for a long time. So I, I knew how to program and started working as an engineer, sort of data scientist at some startups that I, you know, nobody in, nobody in the audience has ever heard of because they didn't work. Um, but I joined Twitter in 09 as an engineer, data scientist. The company was about 40 people um, just in the early, early days. And, uh, you know, did my best to make an impact there and got really lucky as, as, as the company grew, I had some people that kind of took me under their wing, gave me some opportunities that I, you know, had no real business getting. Um, but I worked as hard as I could and tried to make, uh, tried to make their bets worth it. So ended up running product at Twitter for a bunch of years, um, and then moved to Instagram, uh, to lead product there where I got to work with Kevin Systrom, who I still think is the single best consumer product thinker in the world. What, what stage at Instagram did you join? Was it, was it owned by Facebook at that point? It was, so Twitter had grown from about 40 people to about 4,000 people. And this is oh, wow. 2016. So I was there from 2009 to 2016. Uh, and then Instagram was this amazing opportunity to go back to a company. I think it was maybe a hundred or 200 people. So it was within Facebook, Facebook had acquired it, but it was running very separately at that point. Um, I think now they're a bit more integrated, but at that point, uh, Mark really, to his credit, gave Kevin Systrom a ton of autonomy. And I think that was to the benefit of Facebook and Instagram. So it was like moving back to this little, you know, hundred, 200 person company with a tiny product team. Um, but. Instagram at that point was still reaching an audience of like 300 million users. Yeah. Yeah. And then got the opportunity to go start what became, uh, Libra and DM ultimately Facebook's crypto efforts. Um, and I, I I'm drawn to like big missions and that mission was about as big as it gets. The idea was to make sending money to anyone anywhere in the world as, as easy, as free, as fast as sending a text message. And if you, if you, if you dug into FinTech at all, the, the current state of sending money around the world is just horrific. It's regressive. It's bad in so many ways. And we felt like we could make an impact and we, we failed ultimately, but it was a good experience. Well, well, the, the take fees with transmitting money overseas and, and whatnot and, and, uh, remittances is, is crazy, right? They're huge and they're more expensive. The, the poorer that you are, it takes, you know, it takes days. It requires people taking time off their, off their jobs to go and pick up money in a store. Then you, you have these crazy situations where like people are walking out of these stores and everyone knows that they just picked up money. And so there, there's, there are physical threats and we're just like, man, I mean, this should be as simple as sending a WhatsApp message. Walk us through how you, what the process of joining planet was, was like, and, and what convinced you to sort of make that jump because that. Forgive, forgive the uh, pun, but I mean, it's an unfamiliar space, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, a space that I had been uh, a fan of for a long time and it had been, you know, I found myself, we have a seven-year-old and twin five-year-olds. I found myself watching every SpaceX rocket launch with, uh, with my kids, but absolutely very different than what I had been doing. So actually, um, the connection was through, uh, Adam Bain, who was one of my closest friends and mentors since the earliest days of Twitter. He was their CRO and ultimately COO. Um, I wasn't looking, but he, he said, Hey, I, I just met this guy, Will Marshall at planet. Will's the founder and CEO. You've got to meet him. And I was like, Oh, okay. I mean, and as I dug in, it's like, okay, this is an opportunity to go talk physics and satellites and sustainability with this ex NASA rocket scientist. Like, why wouldn't I go? Um, 
And so, you know, the more I learned about Planet, the more I was just like, this is the most interesting company in the world. Um, and I'm, I'm a big believer that you kind of follow your gut. Like I found myself waking up every morning thinking about Planet rather than thinking about my day job. And at some point it's just like, you know, when that happens enough days in a row, you got to go do it. You got to do it. Yeah, totally. I think doing my due diligence for this conversation, I read or heard somewhere that, you know, that the story of basically Will and his co-founders like launching essentially an Android in space. Now that's an oversimplification, but that is, that is like, it gets to the, the root of sort of the CubeSat, SmallSat revolution is a lot of miniaturization and, you know, the, the, we were talking about smartphones, the economies of scale with, with smartphone parts and being able to leverage that for actually putting hardware on orbit. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Well, I loved that planet planet is where it is because Will and Robbie and Chris, who's the, the other co-founder, uh, it kind of did things differently from the beginning. Like you said, I mean, you really weren't far off. It, it literally did start with them launching uh, an Android phone into space. They were at NASA and they saw all of these projects getting done that were like, you know, school bus sized satellites that cost hundreds of millions of dollars and took eight years. And they were like, I think we can do it a different way. And so they literally like strapped a solar panel to the back of an Android phone, launched it into space, found that it could take images of the earth and it could even with its, you know, consumer grade radio, send them all the way back down to a ground station. And it, it kind of, this light bulb went off and it was like, we could do this completely differently. We can build orders of magnitude cheaper. We can build faster. We can use more like off the shelf components. And it's, you know, to me coming from a software background, it's a little bit like the, the, the world of the nineties when everyone was like getting bigger and bigger Oracle servers, like who can buy the, the beefiest Oracle database possible. And then uh, Google came along and said, no, actually, you know what? The world's not about that. You can scale way better if you build software that relies on tons of cheap uh, servers that, uh, and you get a huge amount of benefit from the parallelism and you save a ton of money and you build more resilient software. Uh, and I, it, that, that analogy kind of drives me at Planet. Fast forward to today, Planet's a publicly traded company. You have the, the largest... EO constellation over 200 satellites of memory serves, but for any listeners who are not, might not be super aware of plant. And I suspect that that's a very, very minuscule amount of, of folks who tune into Pathfinder, but can you just give us the quick, you know, 30 second spiel on what planet is and what planet does? Yeah, sure thing. So we talked about the the motivation that that drove the founders to look at a completely different way of building satellites. Um, and that that ultimately showed them that you could, you could build satellites totally differently. So the fact that we that our satellites, they're they're tiny, right? They're uh they're the size of a shoebox. They they weigh about five or six kilograms. That means they're far cheaper to build, to launch. Um, and we also can iterate on them more quickly because we do everything in-house, totally vertically integrated. Um, so that the end result is instead of having three or four satellites, we have a constellation of over 200. Um, the majority of them are in vertical orbit, a, uh, a sun synchronous orbit that, um, they're basically going around the world, north to south while the world spins west to east. And we line scan the whole planet every single day at about three or four meter resolution. And what that means, you know, you think of a square about 10 feet on a side. 
that becomes a pixel. And in the resulting image, we have that over the whole area of the earth. Now, I'm smaller than a 10 foot square. You're smaller than a 10 foot square. It means we can't distinguish individual people. We can't read license plates. We can't read your newspaper, but we can see how the earth is changing and how humans are shaping it on a daily basis. So whether you're talking like agriculture or border management or mining or maritime or floods or insurance or commodities or finance, like the data touches just about every industry. And the interesting thing about it is it's ultimately a recurring revenue SaaS business. So we talk about the satellites, but it's a SaaS business. We have over 800 customers. People uh, purchase the data typically on like a square kilometer basis. That's kind of our analog of like a per seat model in a SaaS uh, company. And these are like yearly, multi-year contracts. So uh, it looks more like a business model people understand, but it's almost like, you know, our data centers are our satellites in, in space. Yeah. You know, I've said before that planet very much feels like a typical Silicon Valley company. You know, you talk a lot about ARR, annual recurring revenue and SaaS and whatnot. You just happen to also have satellites who be scanning the entire planet every day. Exactly. What, if any, like lessons from the consumer social playbook or best practice, I hate the, I hate that term, but for lack of a better term, best practices, if any, did you take from consumer social over to, to running product at planet? Well, I think the, the, the thing that, that transfers, whether you're talking about building a consumer product or an enterprise product, you know, space, social networks, it's a focus on the customer mm -hmm. it, trying to get uh, close to our customers, understand the problems that they have, not just what they tell you the problems are, but what's, what's the underlying thing there. And the better you can understand that, the more crisply you can articulate how you're solving that problem for them. And the more that you can build kind of a cohesive product, uh, that, that fits into the way that they operate on a daily basis. So that's the, I I'm obviously they did, planet didn't hire me because I know what I'm doing in terms of building satellites. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, because I don't, and we have amazing people on the team that are world leading in that. Uh, but the opportunity to build a fantastic software platform around this data is one of the most exciting things that I see. Let's zoom out a little bit to the EO, EO industry writ large. Where would you characterize along, you know, the maturity scale or just you know, how grown up is, is, is EO? And then I also, I mean, the follow on to that is. How would you, how would you characterize, characterize planet's position within that field? Because, and, and this will be an opportunity to, to let, let you talk your book a little bit <laughs> as you were preparing to go public and in, investor materials about the, the, the flywheel starting to spin in terms of the constellation size, the data, everything, but I'll let you, I'll let you talk about it on me. Sure. Uh, well, let me take the first one on, um, the EO industry. Um, the, the interesting thing about this is the answer is across the board. So you've got, um, you've got folks like governments, right? Especially the U S government, they are extremely sophisticated. They've been doing this for years. Um, but for them, they got their start launching their own satellites, which they still do of course a lot. And so what's new for the government side is the opportunity to work with commercial companies like planet where the data is unclassified and you know, there's a whole host of interesting implications that we can talk about from that. Um, and there are industries like agriculture that at least when you're talking about the big ag companies who are all customers of ours, they're also very sophisticated about remote sensing data. Um, you know, whether you're talking Bayer, Syngenta, Corteva, 
um, they, they know what they're doing. And they would love- They have in-house data scientists that know how to, how to process and adjust all this. Exactly. No, they, they definitely do. Um, and I think we have an opportunity with a lot of those customers to take some of the like heavy lifting off of their plates to allow them to do more of the differentiated work that they can do, but they really know what they're doing. And then you have a lot of industries that are just coming up the curve, whether you're talking like energy or insurance or finance, everything that's sustainability oriented, which is kind of like a layer across all the industries we serve. Um, you know, all of these industries need the ground truth that Planet can have. They benefit from understanding how the world is changing on a daily basis in different ways. Um, you can't manage what you can't measure. So the data is critical. But if you like drop a terabyte of pixels onto some of these companies, it's not that they can immediately get value from it. So a lot of our work going forward is how we simplify that for them, how we make it easier for them to uh, extract the signal from the noise to get at what matters to them versus having to start from pixels in every case. Moving up the stack, right? Exactly, exactly. Right, so actually I'm glad that you got a little bit into industry. So if, if my memory is correct, I think in, it might not actually have been, it was, it was two quarters ago, but you, you had around 51% of your sales were to government. And so that includes both uh, military and civil space. When do you think, I mean, that's, so that's pretty close though, because of course, a lot, a lot of your, your peers or, or counterparts, I suppose, in EO, the, the concentration, you know, this, the, there are, are very, very few, few commercial sales, if, if at all, when do you think that the or flipping will happen or will it happen <laughs> in terms of just the majority of the customer base being commercial entities? Well, I think. Uh, you're really close. You're totally right. I think it's one of, it's one of the areas where Planet stands apart in that we serve, we heavily serve both governments and commercial businesses. Um, I, I'm proud to do both, by the way. The world is a dangerous place. I'm very, very proud to serve our government and allied governments around the world. Um, but I'm also really excited to see what happens as, uh, as the commercial industries kind of come up the curve on understanding how to get value out of the data, because it's not just relevant to governments, it's relevant to agriculture and insurance and finance and sustainability and climate and supply chains and like anything you can think of. So uh, I think in the long run, the, the size, there's so many more of those companies, um, they, they will be the majority of the EO business in general. Yeah. Sort of a, a turnkey approach, but what, to what, to what extent do you think in your, you know, in day-to-day -day product at Planet and just overall corporate strategy with the specific industry verticals that you're going after and, and what are, are most of them a market push and that you have to sort of educate and explain and walk through your new potential customers, why this would be of value to them just because they have no sort of precedent. Like you, as you manage, you know, Governments have been launching, owning, operating their own imaging, uh, remote sensing satellites for decades. And so it's, it's more of a familiar space for them. Whereas a lot of these industries, and I know I've seen planet talk about this, but wh why do you walk our audience through that? And just this element of, of, of push versus pull and what of the industries that you've already mentioned, which ones are more sort of now 
kind of, you know, getting up to speed and which ones you're still trying actively kind of marketing to hiring sales staff to, to sell into? Yeah, it's honestly a mix. You know, we're still we're still a small company, so we're hiring sales uh, across the board and in just about every region of the world. Um, we talked as we were going public about the fact that we had just a handful of people in Latin America, for example. And if you've only got a handful of people, they're each covering multiple countries. You know, we couldn't handle all the inbound that's coming at them. And so part of scaling our business is just uh, growing our sales teams to handle the demand that we're, that we're seeing. So there is a bunch of pull from the market. Um, when you get into industry by industry, it, you know, these, these are industries are not one thing, right? So one, some industries, most of the companies that we work with, agriculture is an example, most of the companies that we work with, at least above a certain size, have experts on staff, they know what to do. And it's a matter of making sure that this is the most cost-effective way to, to do what they're trying to do to solve their problems. Um, you get into other industries and you might have a company that is, is investing, is leaning in, gets that there's something here. And then you have a bunch of other uh, companies in their space that are following along behind that, that, that you know, are going to fast follow once they see some success in one area. And we're excited when, when you have those industries, we're excited to go and work with the ones that are, uh, that are leaning into innovation and that are willing to invest with us and co-create something. We find that super exciting. And you have a one, quote unquote, one to many model. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Yeah. And it gets a little bit at your question, which I don't know if I ever came back to about um, how Planet is differentiated from the rest of the industry. So one thing I didn't talk about when I was kind of introing Planet is the fact we actually operate a second constellation today. It's not just the, the ones that scan the whole earth at three to four meter resolution. We also operate a high res uh, constellation of satellites. We have 21 uh, satellites that rather than imaging at three to four meters resolution, they image at about 50 centimeter resolution. But instead of passively scanning, they're tasked. So a customer comes in, uses our API, writes a Python script, you know, comes to the UI and says, I want an image of this particular location at about this particular time. And, uh, and we make that work. That is actually the model that most of our competitors do. There are most of the satellite industry uh, and most of the history of the satellite industry is high resolution tasking. Uh, and that's a harder model to make one to many because you're, you know, by definition, your satellites are tasking what one customer wanted most often. And there are ways to make it more one to many. And we, we think about that as well. You, you have an archive that you can take advantage of. You have customers that are, you know, lots of times multiple customers are interested in one area, things like that. But it's really our medium res, uh, the scan of the whole earth that is the basis of our one to many model and is one of the reasons that our cost structure and margin structure looks so different than every other business in our industry. Uh, because in that case, like the sunk cost is up front, right? We passively scan the whole earth every day and each customer that we sell to incrementally, the, the marginal cost is near zero. So you take a particular patch of farmland, uh, somewhere there might, they're part of a subscription, say for a large egg enterprise that supports the farmer that manages the farmland. They're also part of a subscription for potentially uh, a competitor who's looking at doing some competitive analysis. They're part of the subscription for NASA who's, use, who's studying sustainability. They're part of the subscription for an insurance company who's using the data to track soil water content and monitor drought to improve their risk models. 
They're part of the subscription for a state government studying crop yields for a hedge fund assessing commodities and on and on and on. Right. And that's, that's the root of the one to many. Right. Switching gears to, as I've mentioned already, you know, you're a publicly traded company. I think the D SPAC was consummated in December, late December, early January, late December or no, uh, mid to sometime in December, mid December, I think. Yeah. Yeah. December. That, that's good. That's good enough for our purposes. <laughs> Walk through the, the pressures of pressures, but also opportunities of being a publicly traded company, right? This is, this is really new for pure play space companies. Of course, there's been a lot of legacy contractors that, that have, you know, sizable space divisions that have been publicly traded for a long time, but over the past 18 months and change, you know, there's been all these companies that have, that have gone through the gates, make almost, almost always through a SPAC special purpose acquisition. Yep. Talk about that. And from a, actually from a product lens, you know, I'm sure that you are not watching the stock price day to day and stressing over that and it's heads down building, but want to hear a little bit more about what that experience has been like, because it is still relatively fresh and new. Yeah. I, I won't speak to other companies, but from our perspective, as we went public, we tried to treat it like any other public offering. So I, I was on the management team, uh, through Twitter's IPO, our CFO, Ashley has been on the inside of IPOs in her career as well. So we kind of knew what to expect. And our goal was to be really thoughtful about how we set expectations for future growth. Um, and in a way that maybe not everybody was. And you made, I'm just going to help you out. You, you made like a like hundred million last year or something, something along those lines. A lot, a lot of these other companies are pre-revenue, not to name, I'm not going to name names or anything, but. Yeah. So we were, we were a more mature business, which certainly helped us, uh, in terms of being able to set thoughtful projections. Um, you know, our growth is accelerating. We talked about that. We've been delivering on that. Um, and at the end of the day, we have a proven business model that is it's recurring revenue model. Um, we have a structure, this one-to-many model that we were just talking about that sets us up for strong margins. Uh, and at the end of the day, we had strong interest in the pipe. We had very low redemptions. Yeah. yeah. So we raised almost $600 million from, uh, from our public offering. And that sets us up really well going forward. The redemption rate, I, I'll just double click on that because it was exceptionally low, like 2%. And for those who are not aware that's just essentially investors who put their money into the blank check company that once they find out who the target acquisition company i'm you know I'm, I'm i'm probably butchering this a little bit but basically those who who opts to just get their money back rather than invest in the in the company that that is merging with the spac and it was two percent right yeah it was something about i think a little bit under that that's pretty remarkable because at least even in, you know, January and February where these transactions were still happening, it was like the opposite. It was like 90, 98%, maybe not that high, but it was pretty crazy. But, um, we don't, we don't have to dwell, we don't have to dwell on, on, on the, the publicly traded or public company part of this, but, um, I, I do, I do want to ask, you know, and again, you, you don't, don't have to speak for other space companies, but. It's been, it's been a bumpy road for space backs, I think I'd say. And some investors recently have been talking about the performance of, of SPACs and, and I, I will say, I, I, you have pointed out that it's not necessarily fair to just lump them all into one category, but 
I, I'm going to do for the purposes of this question. Do you think that <laughs> the, tur- the, the the turbulence with SpaceX will have a, a chilling effect on funding for future space companies? Does that worry you at all? Well, it, it, turbulence with space SPACs, it's, I would argue it's turbulence with, with SPACs in general, and frankly, the, the entire public market in general. Yeah, and growth companies especially. Especially growth companies, whether regardless of how they went public. Um, look, I, I mean, I hope not. I, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that I joined Planet was I think this next decade is the decade where space just becomes a part of our everyday lives whether that's SpaceX launching rockets or uh, consumers and businesses and governments everywhere beginning to use Earth observation, remote sensing uh, data to inform their decisions, uh, and then a whole host of things that are kind of further out. Um, I sure hope people continue to invest in space because I think it changes the world. Okay, time for a short break to hear about our sponsors again. Space is the new frontier for cybersecurity. Spider Oak Mission Systems builds space cybersecurity solutions for civilian, military, and commercial space operations. Their orbit secure protocol delivers zero trust security to zero gravity environments, protecting space communication, command, control, data transmission, storage, and integrity at the data level. To learn more about how zero trust architectures will revolutionize security in new space, download the new NSR Spider Oak sponsored white paper titled Space Cybersecurity Current State and Future Needs. You can find that white paper at spacecyber.com. Again, that's spacecyber.com. Or check out their website at spideroak-ms.com. And tell them Pathfinder sent you. We are going to move on now. Uh, deep, deep sigh of relief from, from talking about the, the markets and, and get into just the sort of stack, if you will, with EO in particular. I, I believe I've heard you talk about it. I hear a lot of commentators shout out Arvin, Joe Morrison, talk about sort of the the difference between data analytics insights. Can you unpack that a bit for our listeners who might not be as as familiar with those different parts of the value chain? Yeah, sure. So if you think about the life cycle of, uh, uh, say, an image that's taken by one of our, um, one of our planet scope satellites, a, you know, three to four meter image over a particular area of the earth, the satellites coming over, so our satellites are in an orbit such that basically every day at about 10.30 in the morning, that's when they take their uh, their their scan. So it's 10.30 in the morning local time at every locale in the world. And the reason that's important is because you get things like consistency of where shadows are, which allows you to better uh, run machine learning and, and other kinds of algorithms over the data uh, without having extra noise from like shadows moving around. Um, but as the data, so the... Satellite passes over a ground station. It downlinks the data that it's taken. There's a processing step where the data gets all stitched together. And then ultimately a customer, maybe it's a, a farmer walking their field, has an image uh, of, of their area that same day. And uh, the, the first, the most basic thing is uh, you could just be looking at the pixels, right? And you could, you could be doing that either as a human looking at pixels with your eyeballs um, which works over small areas, but obviously there aren't enough humans and enough eyeballs to look at the entire area of the earth. Or you can be a computer uh, running an algorithm, scanning the the imagery to do some sort of analysis on it. Um, and we could, as a business, choose to just stop there. 
And then anybody who wanted insights or anything on top of it would have to start at the level of the pixels and do all the work themselves. And what we see is that a lot of our, a lot of customers and a lot of partners, uh, just don't, you know, they don't have people on their staff that know how to deal with huge volumes of pixels. It's a, you know, geospatial analysis is still a pretty specialized field. And so either, you know, from our perspective, the best thing that we can do, and this is us, it's partners, is to start building out some of the building blocks that if you look across all the partners that and customers that we serve, a lot of them are having to do the same things over and over again. And we would rather take that undifferentiated kind of heavy lifting from them and give them a higher level product that they can build off of. And then at, once you're, once you're to that point, you can start, you can do the same analysis again. What is everyone having to build that they kind of wish they didn't have to build because their goals are more differentiated. And so for us, it's the more that we can build some of these building blocks, the more, uh, the more customers and partners we can actually bring into the space, because rather than having like geospatial experts on staff, maybe they just need somebody who knows how to write a Python script or somebody that knows how to manage an Excel spreadsheet. Um, or a time series, right? So you, you increase your potential market size, you bring more people into the space, you increase your impact. Um, so I'll give you one example, actually. Um, we acquired a company uh, recently called Vandersat, which is based- Planetary variables? Yep, which is based in- You, you read my mind. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a perfect example of, of this. I, you know, I, I talk sort of abstractly about why we wanna do this, but let me give you a real example. That's what I was gonna ask about. I was looking next. Vandersat is a, a a company based in the Netherlands, and they build a they take they take uh, optical data like what Planet or Sentinel produces, and they take microwave data from other satellites, sometimes even SAR data, which is a different kind of uh, radar based data set, also from satellites. They fuse them all together, and the the collection is more powerful than the sum of the parts. So uh, they produce these these products on top of this data fusion that do things like uh, land surface temperature, soil water content, carbon biomass. And um, one of the, so they, they serve a number of insurance customers, for example, also a bunch of agricultural customers, but one of their insurance customers, a big reinsurer, uh, looks at, they take the soil water content data, which is just literally like how much water is there in the soil over any particular area. And you can look at that going backwards in time and you can develop a risk model uh, for, for how this varies over time with different seasons, drought, amounts of rainfall. And you can actually build an insurance product for farmers using it. And then you can look at the data going forward in time and determine automatically whether you need to pay out a farmer for this drought insurance product. And it, that's an easy product to build. I shouldn't say easy. But it's a it's a possible product. It, it leverages the skills that this reinsurer has in in pricing and risk methodologies and everything to build on top of this soil water content product. If instead we had not had this, and we're like, here's a whole bunch of pixels, you know, you 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 go grab all this data, you do the data fusion, like it just wouldn't have happened. Yeah, have fun, have at it. So it's an example of how building up the stack and making these products easier to use, making the data more accessible ultimately brings in a whole bunch more customers and uh, you know it, it moves the space forward. Switching gears to Ukraine. Let's talk a little bit about Ukraine. Obviously, Planet Imagery has played a large role in, I would say, just the public 
and the media and just the world's understanding of what's going on there. And I find myself checking your gallery almost on a daily basis still, you know, 150 plus days in, into the war. And just the other week, you know, we're recording on July 13th, it was a, a week or two ago, but there you you had a photo of of Snake Island and there was that struggle between Russians and Ukrainians. Uh, the, the latter were trying, you know, were taking, taking back Snake Snake Island, and and it was just so crazy because so me, you know, someone in Austin, someone I don't know in Australia and Africa can like can see what's going on, and it's really I mean I mean of course you know this imagery has been pretty important in, in a lot of ways and showing that the the uh, the emperor has no clothes and just that, that a lot of the, the Russian claims about what's going on on the ground are just you know lies. So, but want to hear from you about that and what the experience has been like, you know, being a, a critical provider of imagery, intelligence, whatnot. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe before I, I start, I should just say the war in Ukraine is just a horrible, horrible situation. Um, but one of the, one of the nice things about being at planet is, is at least we feel like we can make, we can help. Um, and we help in a bunch of ways and it's actually kind of indicative of of a bunch of the differentiators between Planet and the other companies in our industry that we've talked about and the value of having this daily scan of the earth. Yeah. And I, I mentioned earlier in the in the podcast some of the um you know, certainly a lot of of uh the world's most advanced governments, the US very much uh included, they have their own satellites. Um and and I have no details. I'm sure they're using those satellites to help Ukraine as well. But the interesting thing about that is, you know, those satellites by and large are highly, um, uh, uh, top secret. Yeah. That imagery is not getting seen by that many eyeballs. Yeah. They, by, I mean, they don't, they don't putting that imagery out there would, would, would show our, our adversaries and others, the capabilities that the government has, and they'd obviously rather not have that happen. And so actually governments being, it, it's been a really interesting, um, time where governments, I think have been seeing the value of commercial imagery because our data is out there. Like we take a daily scan of the world and, uh, and, and transparency is one of our, our core values at planet. So one example, and so the governments can actually just point to our data to say, this happened. You don't have to take our word for it. You can go look at this imagery. This happened. And um, one example of that was uh, it was in the buildup to the war. It was it was before the war had actually started, but you had Russian troops amassing on the, the border between Russia and Ukraine. And one day, Put uh, yeah, one day Putin said, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm going to pull back. And some of his soldiers in this area that he was referencing pulled back. But at the same time, some other soldiers uh, went and built this like pontoon bridge over a body of water from Belarus into Ukraine and the and governments around the world were able to point at planet data and say he's lying look what just happened uh and it was it's just it, there's a real value in that transparency but the thing i was going to say it's it's really not just um security it's a, that's a big part of the way that we can contribute to helping in Ukraine but one of the second order effects of the war that's just beginning to be written about is the coming food crisis because Ukraine is the world's, I think, fifth largest exporter of wheat. And so you know, we're working with, with 
with governments and NGOs around the world to understand that, to map where it's happening, like what crops are being planted and where, what is the yield going to look like? And just ultimately to kind of get ahead of it, because the more that we can get ahead of it uh, as a society, the more that we can prevent food crises in neighboring countries that, that are normally dependent on Ukraine. Uh, NASA in particular is doing some incredible work on this front and the New York Times uh, just recently wrote about it. But then there are other angles too, right? You can look at, um, there are a number of NGOs and multilateral organizations that are using planet data as a source of ground truth, uh, one among many in this case, to determine whether war crimes may have been committed. You know, so they're looking at things like intentional destruction of civilian buildings, destruction or theft of like non-combatant food supplies like grain silos, mass graves. Um, and in, we are certainly not the only data set. There's all kinds like, you know, TikTok and Instagram are also relevant data sets because you combine earth observation data with what's happening on the ground to put together a full story. But um, this is, you know, these are important analyses that these NGOs and multilaterals are doing. And it's just like planet data contributes to all of these things. Yeah, yeah. It's been, I mean, I, I want to just underscore too, that I not, not classic, you know, it's been, it's tragic, it's horrific and, and, but it's been crazy to see along with NGOs and, you know, international institutions, amateur sleuths. And I, and I don't, I, I in no may, in no way mean that as a disparagement when I say amateur, but just, you know, these OSINT, uh, open source researchers using combination of, of your imagery. And as you said, UGC platform, user generated content platforms to just track what's going on. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's like, a like a internet, internet, uh, totally declassified intelligence agency, but the, the, you know, the, the flip side or, co or corollary to that is that you can't like believe everything. So you got to, got to do, do your own, own research and diligence. But, but it is certainly the case that, that, you know, these, these online researchers have, have unco uncovered, you know, pretty remarkable things. And there's, there's, you know, there's a database of, of Russian equipment vehicles that have been destroyed that uses all of these sources. Yeah. I mean, just to give a couple of, of examples on that front, um, a couple of years ago, some Buzzfeed researchers, uh, were looking around in Northwest China, I think using Baidu maps, right? Baidu is the Google of China. Um, and they found that when they zoomed into a certain level of, of, uh, resolution, the map tiles would go blank. And they were like, you know, what, what, what's, what's going on here? So they went and they looked at planet data and the nice thing about satellites, satellites, you know, they kind of act like international waters. Like we don't have to remove anything, um, for anybody from, from our daily scan of the earth. So they zoomed in on the same areas with planet and lo and behold, there were Uyghur camps there. Um, and the interesting thing, you know, another absolutely horrible, uh, thing, but, but they could look not just at the state of the camps today, but because we have a daily scan of the earth, they could go back day on day and look at how these things have been constructed. How fast, what does it look like as they're being built? And then you can use, you can use computer vision AI and go and look for other instances and see where, uh, these things might be being built now. And so again, like this kind of open source intelligence, the transparency just creates a ton of value. I think it could be very, very good for the world. Yeah, totally. Right? You, you just, you can't do anything macroscopic in the world anymore and expect to be able to hide it. And, right. Right. Um, that's a, that's a pretty fundamental shift. Yeah, absolutely. And do you worry at all about, I mean, you, maybe you personally, but, but also your employees who are working all, 
a lot with this sorts of data that's very clearly, you know, it doesn't even, it's, it goes about saying driving like real world positive change, but just the effects that they could have on their mental health, because it is, you know, it's, it's a lot of these are, are of course, you know, atrocities and, and very jarring, I think I'd say, and maybe it's not, you know, you're looking from a satellite. It's not the same thing as like seeing a video on the ground, like in situ to use a space term, but do you, do you worry about that or, at all? Or, or is the kind of effect, you know, knowing that the validation of, of making like a difference, does that sort of outweigh the more traumatic parts of dealing with that data and imagery? Well, I think there's a pretty sharp distinction. You know, I've, I've, um, I, I probably the companies I've worked with in the past have been closer to a lot of that where, you know, you're looking at yeah horrible gore and other kinds of content that people post to social media and you have you have people yeah. that the content moderation yeah that are doing content moderation like that's uh, my heart goes out to those people it's such a hard job and it's absolutely necessary but it's such a hard job it is yeah you know we have less of that at planet because you're you know again 10 foot square turns into one pixel um the other difference i would say is uh, we as a company aren't, when you get into like individual use cases, we work with partners that are working with customers on to go into like the real, you know, uh, areas of expertise. We couldn't possibly have every expertise that every customer across the world wants. And so partners are a huge part of our business. And so when you get into some of the real uh, nitty gritty stuff, it's not usually planet employees digging in and looking at it. It's, it's usually partners who are experts in the space, bringing in third parties and NGOs and others to, um, to weigh in with expertise. So th there's a few differences, but at the same time, I mean, it, it's, it's serious. And, um, the, the world is a dangerous place. I think you kind of have to just, you know, believe that, um, the net effect that, that planet can bring in bringing transparency is a massive positive, even if sometimes that means you capture some of the bad things that happen in the world. Yeah. Yeah. On the inverse, on the flip side of that, I suppose, I asked Twitter earlier today, you know, asked our, our followers, payload followers, if you know, had any questions. So one person asked, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of familiar with the protocol here, but would love for you to walk through Pathfinder listeners, what safeguards that you, you put in place to prevent misuse of your data? It's a fantastic question. And it's one of the, as I was talking to Will and Robbie, the founders about joining, I asked a lot about that. I've been extremely impressed uh, by the processes that, that Planet has in place. Uh, we've, we have an ethics committee that has real teeth um, that you know basically anybody at the company can kind of call stop the line, like, hey, something doesn't feel right here. Uh, certain deals with certain sensitivities will automatically go to the ethics committee. Uh, and they've had this committee in place since before we even had an imagery product. So it was something that, that Will and Robbie and the other early employees, uh, had from the beginning. Um, so it's just, it's sort of a core part of, of, of our view of the world. It's, um, you know, we believe in transparency. We believe in the ability of this data to do good. Um, and we, we think deeply about how, you know, the areas where it can be misused. Sometimes that means building certain provisions into contracts that say the data can be used this way and not that way with an ability to, you know, cancel contracts if, if the data is being misused. 
it also sometimes means just walking away from contracts. And uh, believe me, I have seen the, the, the ethics committee has teeth. I've seen us walk away from large contracts before. Yeah. And I mean, this is a conversation for another day. It could be its own podcast or book for that matter, but like the geopolitics of all of this and ITAR, but it goes without saying you're not selling to, I don't know, like the Mullahs in Iran or North Korea. I mean, certainly we don't sell from the beginning. Of course, there's no sales to somebody who's uh, on a sanctions list, yeah. right? That's that's out for be to begin with. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but then we apply further standards. Right, right, right. So, okay. So, so we're going to, we're going to move on from the, uh, the top, the tough stuff to a little bit lighter stuff to, to close out the show. And, and this is actually the second question from, from Twitter. It's from Arvin. Who I know, you know, you've been on his podcast. Where did it, where did I put it on my list? Essentially, I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but he said basically something along the lines of what's, what's one thing that you wish could happen to the earth observation industry overnight. Oh, so I get to snap my fingers and just, you know, something changes overnight. Yes, yes, yes. Genie in a bottle. I love it. Um, I'll say awareness because, uh, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nerd. I like read math and physics books in my spare time. And I still like, I barely knew about this industry beforehand. I think most of the world has no clue that this industry exists. And, you know, it's relatively new, so that's understandable. But I, this, the data and, and the impact coming from planet and the rest of the earth observation industry could be a hundred times what it is if there was more awareness. And now we have to do work on our side too, right? We've got to make the data easier. We've got to make it, you know, more uh, straightforward and automatic to integrate into people's workflows, all these other things. But awareness is first and foremost. And if I could snap my fingers and just have everybody aware of the capabilities that we have today as a, as humanity, in terms of what we know about the earth and how it changes on a daily basis, uh, I, I think, again, we could accelerate the, the good that we do in the world. Yeah. Well, I think you, you and me both, right? I mean, everyone that's, that's in space in some way, sh shape or form. And again, Arvin, Arvin's getting tons of shout outs on this podcast, but he, he has this, this theory that the amount of attention or headlines, you know, that a certain segment of, of the space industry gets is inversely correlated with its actual value, whether that's monetary or, or, uh, you know, more intangible value. And so the canonical example here, of course, is space tourism. I think that a lot of the public just thinks that that's mainly what the space industry is doing, right? That's the North star is just sending billionaires to space. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is, I completely agree that it's a travesty that more of the public thinks that, and, and then, you know, doesn't know about planet. And I, that's probably, that's, that's definitely probably changing now with, you know, your imagery, like splayed across the top fold of the New York times or on, you know, the main, the main article online, but, but it's still, I mean, I, I don't know if there, I, I think there have maybe been some surveys, but I'm pretty confident if you ran surveys, at least in the U S like people, more people would, you know, make the association between the space tourism where, where in reality, of course, earth, earth observation is an order of magnitude bigger industry and driving all, all these like positive social changes. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that's important. Yeah. One of the reasons that I joined planet, uh, you know, instead of other companies in the industry, all of whom I think are doing amazing things, as we talked about, we're, we're both huge fans of the space industry in general, but planet's mission is to use space to help life on earth. 
And, uh, you know, we, we need to do a lot outside of earth for sure, but we have problems here on earth today. And, uh, I, I planet is one of the, the, the companies I think that has the biggest opportunity to make a real positive impact on that front. And it's, it's why I wanted to work here. It's why I'm inspired to come to work every single day. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that makes a lot of sense. Space to earth. There is, there's cool, there's cool shit too, though, happening in space to space. Shout out, obviously this week, uh, all the, the, the web imagery that's, it's been, that's been really cool. That has also been, uh, you know, positive, I think for perception, like it was, it's, it was all over the place yesterday. A bunch of my friends were talking about it who are not, you know, space, space geeks whatsoever and not affiliated in any way with space. So that, that, that was cool to see. Do you, do you, I, I actually didn't plan to ask this, but I, I think you're probably the per best person that I've talked to on the podcast so I could ask to, do you think in the de next decade that a lot of people will follow in your footsteps from big tech broadly defined into new space? I hope so. Um, I mean, I, and I will say I had nothing but positive experiences at the big tech companies that I worked with. Uh, I'm proud of the work that I did. I worked with amazing people. Every single person that I worked with was there because they believed that they could do good. You know, the world is of course a lot more gray than we probably realized in the early days of building social media, but still like no regrets. I worked with amazing people, but I do think you're seeing now a lot of, of, of those kinds of folks realizing that there are other ways that they can make an impact. So you're seeing them go into climate and sustainability. You're seeing them go into some of these space industry, um, healthcare, like, I think there's a real deep tech verticals. Yeah. Yeah. Deep tech. There's just a real sense of like, let's try and there's a whole bunch of areas of the world that, that we could be doing a lot better in. Let's go try and make some impact in those areas. Space is absolutely one of those. I would love to see more of a migration. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the insinuation or there, there was no sort of insinuation there that like, you know, those companies, it, I was more asking from a place of like, they're at like the end of history to use like the Francis Fukuyama term and just, just in terms of they're really, really mature organizations, you know, along that, the S curve, whereas, whereas space is just starting to, to take off again, forget the pun, but yeah, I, I, I hope so too. And I think that it, it will be interesting to watch. And I've talked about this with previous prior guests, but because of, you know, because of so, so the prevalence of software and just a, like a lot of these skill sets are are, are complementary, if not overlapping. So I think that increasingly you'll see, you know, there, there could like companies like yourself and a lot of the other companies in, in Silicon Valley, whether it's consumer or B2B and SaaS, like they're all competing for the same talent. Yeah. And I think a lot of, a lot of the companies in our space, uh, they're, they're focused heavily on building satellites. And one of the other areas where migration from the, the big tech companies can help is I think the way that we're going to win is by uh, being amazing on the satellite and the hardware side, of course, but also by building incredible products that are simple to use. Um, and the companies that are going to do best are going to be the ones that can marry both of those things. Um, and folks, you know, I think Planet is is the best at that, and uh, I I intend to help us keep getting better and better at that every single day. And um, but I, I we all like. That's one of the places that the, the big tech companies have set themselves apart. So more of that expertise entering our space is only good. Mm -hmm. Glad we hit on that. To round out the show here, we're going to just do a couple rapid fire questions or as our producer, 
uh, producer Courtney likes to call it uh, rocket fire questions. She just always mispronounces it, but <laughs> so you, you can, uh, you know, optical, but also other modalities you could see, see, I'm using that, that, that word loosely, but you could see like cows farting in space. You could see fires from space. And we've talked about a lot, a lot of other things, you know, you could, you can detect tax evasion from space basically. And that it's, it would take me a couple of minutes to explain what I mean there, but what's the, what's like the craziest thing that you yourself have, have uncovered in, in the past few years while working at planet about just something that you, you could detect from space or see from space that you just would never have thought of in your wildest dreams hmm. or nightmares. Um, you know, uh, one of the, this is a, this is a partial answer to your question, I guess, but one of the things that struck me, uh, and you can, you mentioned the planet's gallery, you can go to it. It's planet.com slash gallery is mm -hmm. just, I'll you get a sense notes. of cool. You get a sense of how rich and varied the world actually is when you look at it from above and you look at you get to look at the entire expanse of the world from deserts to tropical rainforests to coral reefs to antarctica to everything you can imagine and and frankly a lot of things that i could have never imagined um and you just you see this from uh, from the view of a satellite it's a little bit like uh you know the view from the space station you realize like there are no there are no boundaries on these things. There aren't state lines and country lines. Like it's just this incredible world that we live in. And it, it really, at least for me, um, you know, I'm a big sustainability person. Um, uh, I've served on the board of the nature conservancy for a while, but it, for me, at least it really hits home when you look at it through a satellite in a way that, uh, it, it doesn't in your daily life or, yeah, yeah. I don't know. So, so that, that has really resonated with me and it's changed the way I think about, you know, conservation and climate and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of your images are stunning. And I think Ryder, shout out to Ryder, who, who writes the Planet Snapshots newsletter, does a, does a good job of curating and highlighting those. So I'll also put that show notes. Yeah, please do. Plan Planet Snapshots, that newsletter is, is <laughs> fascinating every week. Uh, and a good... We, it's great. It's great. Good sense of humor too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I've, I've been loving it. Second rap fire question. What is your hottest take about the future of space? Hottest take about the future of space? Um, it's a really open-ended question. Hmm. That, uh, well, I think with space, I don't know how hot of a take this is. I think, um, the, the old Bill Gates quote about you underestimate what you can do, uh, in 10, you overestimate what you can do in a year, but you underestimate what you can do in 10 years is absolutely true. Yeah. You know, I've, I heard, uh, I heard stories about planet's early days when, uh, you know, the only launches they could get their satellites up in were government launches from various governments around the world that were really keyed off of like science experiments that the government was doing. And when those science experiments were late, they of course delayed the launch for them. And so planet's just sitting there going like, well, I uh, wanted to launch yeah. those satellites, but I guess we'll wait with you. There was just nothing. Right. I, so versus today you've got like, it's, it's almost, it's almost ho-hum when uh when spacex lands a rocket back on a pad you know it gives me goosebumps every time but it's just like you expect it at this point so we've come there that's less than 10 years so just imagine what the next 10 years are going to hold um i will say I, I hope this isn't too hot of a take but i also would love to see more tech companies working with the government um i it's the history of silicon valley it's a big part of the the reason you know of the us's um, you know, historical sort of, um, 
progress. And um, I, I think it's fundamentally deeply important. And um, I would love to see the sort of prevailing wisdom on that change, to see more government and tech collaboration across the board. Uh, and um, I think the tech industry needs to change on that front. Yeah. For more on that, I would, I would refer listeners back to a prior episode a few weeks ago we did with A6TG's Catherine Boyle, who talked quite a bit about that. Yeah. Last question. And not, not, I'm not asking you to rely on any, any insider info. You probably don't have any insider info because it's been a while since you've been at Twitter, but I just want you to make a pr quick prediction. Do you think that Elon, and this ties together space and Twitter. <laughs> so do you think that Elon will end up owning Twitter? Oh gosh, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I definitely don't have any insider information. Um, yeah, I don't no, know. No, no one knows what's going on there. It seems like probably not at this point if he doesn't want to own it. Uh, you know, the world where you force this thing onto him when he doesn't want it is uh, not a great outcome for Twitter and not a great outcome for him. And that seems just bad all around. Um, at the same time, uh, I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's great from a governance and rule of law standpoint for people to just like arbitrarily mess with uh, contract law. So there should probably be real, some real penalties. Um, and I, I have no idea what the future holds. Uh, the only thing I know about Twitter is that it is, uh, it is full of interesting drama. It was full of interesting drama when I was there and that hasn't stopped and, you know, continues to this day with this episode. So I, I just, I think it's an important service. Um, I think the world is poorer without Twitter. Uh, so I hope that wherever it resolves, it resolves in a way that they can, uh, they can continue forward ambitiously. Yeah. From particle physics to contract law. There you have it, folks. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of payload. So this has been a lot of fun. Okay, that will do it for Pathfinder episode 0008. Thanks to Kevin for coming onto the show to talk all things EO. Shout out to Spider Oak Mission Systems for sponsoring. And finally, a huge shout out to all of you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, leave us a five-star rating wherever you're listening to this. And if you have any other feedback, you can reach out to me directly at ryan at payloadspace.com. I am Ryan Duffy signing off, and I will see you back here next week.